0: laughing and weeping the year beginning conference over the new year 2009 holiday father richard Rohr and russ hudson presented a teaching of the enneagram to over 600 people in albuquerque new mexico this is session three with russ hudson the body center types eight nine and one with a response by father richard Rohr. Uh, i just want to say uh, before i start dictating again, or taking dictation really, um, that um, how wonderful it is for me to be in a room of people of this size with the kind of presence and holding that you're opening to with each other. It's a rare thing. I just wanted to bear witness to that. So we're going to talk this evening about the three types of the belly, or the instinctive types as we call them. And as I'm, before I begin, I just would invite you for a moment to sense your feet on the floor, or wherever they are, it helps if they're kind of on the floor. We, We tend to cross our legs to shut off our awareness of the body. Uh, We're going to talk about that. There's a difference between sitting in a way where we feel available and turning ourselves into this kind of human pretzel that shuts everything out. Right? So, and just to take a few slightly deeper breaths, be aware of your breathing. See if you can sense yourself sitting in the chair, your feet on the floor. Might just be a little tingling, that's okay. Whatever's here, you just be with that. And the ego says, okay, I did it, now what? (laughs) But there is no next here, there's no what else. We just stay with that a little bit. And while we're talking tonight and exploring this, I just invite you to keep coming back to breathing right down into your belly, sensing yourself sitting. If you're taking notes, you can sense your finger on the pen or pencil writing. Just be aware of your actual presence here. Like you actually are here to come home To yourself. A little thing I learned many years ago, for me contemplation or meditation is not going anywhere. That's called a trance. We do those just fine without any spiritual help. Really contemplation for me is learning to come home to where I am, the here and now, where the grace that we speak of actually can reach us, where it is actually waiting for us. Okay. So, that's the invitation. So, uh, I put a lot of emphasis on this part and I was trained to in my years in the Gurjif work From the sense that, if I'm not here, then what the heck else is going to work? How am I going to love someone if I'm not here? If I'm out to lunch, in the nine different ways we go out to lunch, who's going to love? One of the core teachings that Gurdjieff brought was he, he said that in the process of transformation, the first shock we talked about shocks before, was self-remembering, which means to remember to be here, to be present, to open oneself to presence. The second shock was the awakening of the heart, the arising of compassion, conscience, sometimes remorse. And in that is born what we call real love. He said a lot of perfectly good intention folks with genuine spiritual impulses in them go off course because we try to do the second one when we haven't done the first. We try to love without being present, so then it's the ego trying to do it, and the ego can do many interesting things it cannot love. It can be attached. It can uh, feel sorry. <laughs> feel sorry for ourselves, that's for sure. It can do a lot of interesting things, but not love in the sense of love that we're invited to, that I think people here tonight are interested in, right? So we can look at each of these Enneagram types and the certain parts as things that either help us be here or the ways that we forget to be here, as I said before. So the eight, nine, and one, the, the belly is first of all the question, am I here? Am I here right now? Not an idea of it. Check, see. Eckhart Tolle has this really wonderful way of sort of sneaking up on this. I love the brilliance of this. He says, just see if you're still breathing. (laughs) Like, yeah, good. But you notice if you actually do it, suddenly you're, you're more here, you're more with it. You're more alive. So being in the belly, has to do with actual, first of all, the direct experience of our existence. What in spiritual tradition and philosophical traditions is often called being. The ability to be. Right? And this being is not dull. It's the sense of being alive, of being connected, of being at one with things. If you're actually fully here in your body, the spiritual rumors that we're all one Cease being rumors. You know, it's a little counterintuitive. We think that if we get in the, our body, we're going to be stuck inside this sack of skin. We'll be cut off from everything. The opposite is true because your body is already connected with the whole sacred reality that God's expressing right now. We're staying out of it. We won't put our foot in the pool. <laughs> See? So, This whole part is teaching us what does it mean to actually live in the here and now, feel our existence, and to operate from that. Which gives us a sense of confidence, fullness, aliveness, being. It's literally, you feel like, you know, in in religious language, it's like you feel upheld and held in the presence of God. A mighty fortress is our God. I remember that one, right? Good old Luther there again. And it fe- it's like feeling the solidity of spirit, the solid, the fullness, the gutsy vibrance of presence, spirit, life, right now, yeah? To whatever degree we're not present, we lose that sense, we lose the confidence, we lose the fullness, we lose the sense of existing, That's a pretty big thing. Now, how does this happen? Well, if we were doing a training, I'd go into a big explanation of psychodynamically, stuff that happens when you're a little kid that sort of contributes to this. I'll give you one little piece of it, though. Ever been around a little child around age two? What do we call that age? The what twos? (laughs) Terrible twos. So, when kids learn a magic word that they sure like at that age. What's that word? No, No. right, no. Well, right around then what's happening is children are learning how to function. They're learning how to kind of quote, be themselves. And psychologically speaking, they're separating from their complete dependence on their parents, particularly their mom. But you know, dad's supposed to help you with that. Dad's supposed to say, don't worry, little Johnny or little Mary. I'll show you how the world works. Come along with me. right? And we're we're developing what psychologists call autonomy, our ability to function and be a person and take our place in the world. But what you notice is when you're a little kid, how do you know that you can do it? Any ideas? How do you know you can do something? when you're a little child. You experiment, you do it, a lot of things. Well, the part I want to point to is that you can do it away from your mother and father. You can do it on your own. In other words, dad's not helping you. mom's like when you're a little kid and you're learning how to eat, at first, you know, mom's feeding you, well, from her body at first, and then you get the formula, and then, you know, the little airplane and the spoon goes in your mouth and, you know, and that's okay up to a point, but then he, what happens? Give me that spoon, me, me do it. I want to do it, right? So, and we get what's the sort of energy, emotional energy there when the child's feeling that way? And if anybody tries to interfere with them doing it, anger. A lot of people talk about anger in the eight, nine, and one. I say you have to know why. If you don't understand why, that and two dollars will get you a ride on the New York subway. As we say in New York, why are we angry? It's an instinctual response to the sense of feeling interfered with, messed with, right? And we learn as egos that functioning means being separate. So guess what our unconscious fear is? All this talk about unity and being at one with God, what little fear might come up for most of us? we'll lose ourselves, we'll lose our ability to function, we'll lose our false sense of intactness. How many people here have thought that if you had some kind of spiritual awakening that you might end up being some kind of drooling, mystic, you know, weaving baskets all day? You know, we have these fantasies. Like, if everything's one, who's gonna do the dishes? And it's not a small thing, we, this really bugs us. Furthermore, once we got our little ego up and running and we're kind of have this sense of intactness and so forth, which is in a sense, a construction that's somewhat alienated from the sense of being, we don't want anyone messing with it. We call the 891 the I don't want to be messed with types, right? I don't want to be messed with. Show me an ego I'll show you a structure that does not want to be interfered with. Now, this is very interesting. What do you suppose presence and grace are gonna do to our ego structures? Mess with them quite a lot. And what is our internal response when that happens? I'm not gonna breathe. You can't get me, God. Uh, Hell no, I won't flow. Okay. I'm in here in my nice little ego boundaries. Everything's intact. Ha <laughs> you can't get me. And that's all egos. If you're eight, nine, or one, you're a specialist. <laughs> you know how to do this. So, <laughs> I'm kind of proud of it too, I think. <laughs> well, the eight, nine, and one... Also, each represent different elements of grace, spirit, essence, whatever you want to call it, that is like the core of their soul that have to do particularly with the sense of this embodiment that we're talking about, incarnation, as it's called in some circles. Right? So let's look at these one at a time. What I'm going to do, I'm going to explain to you what the grace or the essential core is The loss of that leads to the passion. And then the healing of the passion through the turning back toward the grace starts to grow in us the virtue. And that'll be about enough as I think I can say in the time we have. Let's see if I can do this. I love a good challenge. That's my inner eight. So let's look at, I always like to start with the eights because they're the first in this triad. And I believe in building a house from the foundation up And eight energy is initiating energy. Starts things, gets things going, says, let's go, right? But the essence of eight, the spiritual core of eight, is like the strength, vividness, realness of presence, of being, of life, the immediacy, what Eckhart Tolle called the power of now. Not the niceness of now. It's like if you really have an encounter with spirit, it's not pastel and wimpy. You know, it's powerful, it's alive, it's real, it's vivid. How many eights we have in the house? Who identifies with point eight? You understand what I'm talking about? Like if you're an eight, that's what you live for. Things to be real. Damn it. Right? To be immediate, true, vivid, like you could sink your teeth into it, like your toes in the mud, right? It's like that sense of realness, aliveness. And that is a natural capacity gift of the soul when we're present. We're at one with the aliveness, realness, vividness of the universe. And to lose that, to lose that, let your heart feel how much that would hurt what it would feel to lose the sense of being real, alive, true, strong, full. It's like suddenly we feel deflated and we feel dead. The loss of this particular quality makes our soul feel like it's dead inside. And we don't like that much. And if you're an eight, this is like your biggest wound. It's your biggest suffering. And that terrible loss, this sense of powerlessness, deadness, inner inertness, we can't bear it. So the suffering, this core suffering of that is the passion itself, the suffering, this loss of the aliveness. The symptom of it is lust as an addiction to intensity. Like I'm gonna turn things up a tad I'm gonna push things a little bit. I'm gonna make it happen. I'm just gonna, like I'm walking uphill all the time. Right? Through my body's tension and through breathing and through kind of inner exertion, things will feel real again. See, it's not just lust like something I did last week. If I'm an eight, I'm doing that most of the time. Using more energy than I really need to and it kind of burns me out over time too, truth be told sure a lot of eights could testify to that. And I do it because I believe this is the way back to what I love, the part of God that's like my corner of the divine kingdom, right? And I I miss it and I can't bear it, but my ego doesn't know how to get there. Without presence, it's not possible to get back. The ego cannot get back, but it tries. We give it an A for effort. We don't need to beat ourselves up about it. It's very logical that a little kid would do this. It's very logical that a soul would do this. But we can become wise. And we can learn that the real strength of which I'm teaching, of which I'm speaking, always comes with a breathtaking vulnerability because real aliveness is to be affected by everything. You see, we we put on armor in our different ways, and if you're eight, you're good at it, because we felt too hurt, too vulnerable, too overwhelmed, and we felt like we lost what could protect us in the midst of all this, the part of the divine presence that feels like our strength and our energy and our self-protection. So the ego tries to figure out how to do this by being tough, by being hard, by not letting things get to me. But that strands me, alienates me from what I love the most. So the journey back to this real strength always entails letting my heart being affected again. And heaven knows all my beloved eights, I know how hurt and scared and rejected you can feel. right, but to just be with that is what invites the real strength. Do you understand me? And I bet you, you've experienced it and know exactly what I'm talking about. The more an eight continues in that vein, opening to that grace, being willing to be with that vulnerability, the the virtue of the eight starts to manifest. For me, the virtues are not givens. Like the, the, the essential part is a grace, it's a freebie. You can be going around, around completely out to lunch and you just breathe a little bit and suddenly there's that real strength to help you out when you most need it. Virtues are the cultivation in a person who has continuously oriented their heart towards the truth. It's what's cultivated in us. It's not something we cultivate. You can't just decide, gee, I'm gonna go be virtuous. It Doesn't work that way. But if we keep our heart oriented in the right way, we stay present, we're willing to feel that passion in us, the passion begins to burn. This was Gurdjieff's second shock. We, there's a fire in our heart, and this is true for all the types. It starts to burn, literally. It's like a searing sword, has been put right into your chest. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You stay with that, you stay with that, and what arises is the virtue which has been called by Oscar Chazo innocence, which I think is a beautiful expression, but some of you may have read the article that Don and I wrote in Radical Grace a couple months back. We also would suggest another good traditional Christian word here that goes here is mercy. Show me an awakened eight, I will show you an incredible heart of mercy. In the deepest sense of that word, to be powerful, strong, and merciful. You know, like a true king or queen. And that's the journey you're here to take if you're an eight. Everything else just details. But that's the core of what it's about for you. And as long as you shall live, it will be about you remembering where the real strength comes from, restoring the heart of tenderness, which we know you have. You're not fooling anybody, by the way. We know, the rest of us. And letting this mercy be cultivated in you. That's your spiritual journey. That's what God wants for you. to be quiet a second, I just got taken by a holy idea. (laughs) Sometimes things come to a stop. So I think that's enough to give you a flavor of what's going on. I'll say the same pattern for each type. Does that seem workable for you? I want to keep it focused so that you get the core of what, uh, what I want people to understand is that the Enneagram rightly understood is not just a typology, it's an invitation to the remembrance of grace, but it's very specific in what will help us do that. It's very specific in seeing how brilliantly we pull the wool over our own eyes, but that we also know what the deeper truth is. One of the amazing things I experience over and over when I teach this is that it's never like people are shocked, like, oh, my God. It's like, no, it's like, I know exactly what you mean, because we all know what this is. We remember it together. And if, again, I feel like I'm in a place where I can talk about God, this is fun. Um, I believe it's in this way that we truly become the body of Christ. So um, the nine, I put the little chart up here, just, I don't know, visual illustration. So we had here the eight, lust is the passion, but then we looked at innocence. Come on paper, I don't want to get lustful with you here. And mercy. The nine is at the center of this triad. So what does that mean? It means that if you're a nine, the particular challenge of this triad, the whole issue of embodiment, you're like the poster child of the challenges and opportunities here. Right? You're right in the center of it. It's very interesting. So in the nine space, It's really about being itself, the sense of being, the feeling, the direct experience, I am, I exist, I am a manifestation of God, it's not a rumor. I feel that divine presence and how that divine presence is producing this life. It's all some unfathomable, huge unity right now. And when we feel that directly, we also feel we've come home. Even if it's just for a moment, we have glimpses of it. We feel I'm home now. It's like, you know, the Buddhists have those gigantic mandalas of the show the Buddha and all this sort of beings. And, and so the nine is the part of us that kind of puts ourselves somewhere over in the periphery. <laughs> but there's something when we show up, when we arise, when we arise from the dead, arise Lazarus, right? Suddenly we take our place, I'm here. I'm not this idea of myself. Something shows up that is what I really am. And I feel that, I know it. And in that, it's not like a challenge to the world because I feel so harmoniously related to everything that exists. It's not that I'm here and you're not. We're all manifesting out of this oneness and this is what the nine knows. This is the wisdom of nine. Nine's in the house. This makes sense what I'm talking about? This is what you're here to teach. It's what you're here to be. It's what you're here to remind the rest of us about. And no one can do it better than you. Right? Uh, you know, the, the, the whole thing here is, very, all these passions are painful. They make me weep when I think of them. A nine passion is born out of the loss of this. The sense I I don't exist, I don't matter, I'm nothing. I'm not real. I'm peripheral. I'm disconnected from everything. I'm a little insignificant, nothing. All egos feel that on some level. That tremendous sense of not mattering. Not believing that we are beloved of God, right? What? And that produces the passion of sloth. Sloth is sometimes described in the Enneagram literature as laziness. I take issue with this. Laziness is a kind of a superego inner critic word that doesn't offer a lot of insight or help. Laziness is not even that accurate because I've known a lot of nines who are incredibly accomplished people. Brilliant artists, scientists, politicians. We probably had more nine presidents of the United States than any other type. It's not that nines are, not, are lazy, like they're all sitting on the couch eating Doritos or something. And when that does happen, psychologists have another word for that. It's called depression. Sloth is giving up on ourselves. We give up. It's too hard, I'm not worth it. It's sort of a, a collapsed heart. The eight is this deadness, the nine is a sort of collapse. It's like, oh, it's no use. You know, and, and feeling forgotten, feeling forsaken, feeling disconnected the loss of the sense of being. But what do little kids do in the face of that? Pretty brilliant, really. They create in their mind a world where things are together again. They, in, if there's a traumatic family, they make up a good mom and dad in their head or uh, an image of Jesus or, or God that helps them. They, have, they read stories about horses. The child learns to render in my mind an internal world that feels safe that I can go to because I feel unwelcome in this one or that I can't really be here. So we go into this inner world where we feel safe, where things feel manageable, where things are peaceful. As again, it's the ego imitating the real deal. Because when we are at that home in ourself, in the real sense, we feel so at peace, so at rest in the state of being, so at one, right? But the ego creates its own separate oneness and then doesn't want that messed with. And so another word you could use for this passion is inertia, the inertia of the ego. And here, again, center of the triad, boy, if I'm a nine, for all these rumors about merging, I'll tell you, all the nines I've known are much more interested in not being messed with. You now, don't mess with me. Now, I'll be very nice about it. Nines are just those masters, uh-huh, uh-huh, oh, sure, anytime, yes, of course, whatever you like. Internally, I'm going, uh uh-uh you ain't getting to me (laughs) i've dug in my heels with a smile on my face but again what i'm actually trying to protect is this inner kind of world i've rendered that i created to protect my delicate heart and because i didn't feel there was a place for me in the real world so i made up my own pretty good clever thing to do so we don't need to Beat ourselves up about brilliant coping strategies, but we might have our hearts ready for something more, right? So for nine, what's the invitation? You can't be in the real unity without your life force, energy, and instinct. Now I'll tell you something, what's the big thing nines are afraid of? Conflict, and what will come up if there's conflict? What emotion? Anger. Thou shalt not be angry. I don't believe that was one of the 10 Commandments actually, but for nines it is. But does that stop me from being angry? You've never lived with a nine if you think that's true. (laughs) Right? What nine? I just I dissociate from it. I, Elvis has left the building. Anger's here, I'm out the back door. Woo! Ha <laughs> ha! See you later. But the anger's there building. And the more it's building, the more I get scared of it, the more I dissociate, the more I'm not with it. And then it finally comes out in some way that's pretty messy, that makes me feel really bad. And makes me even more afraid of it. See. <laughs> Where our ang- we, we are with our anger in the same way we are with all our instinctual body energy. Show me a person who dissociates from their anger. They're going to dissociate from all their other instinctual energies. If I repress and clamp down on my anger, guess what I do with my other instinctual energies? If I act out my anger, guess what I do with my other instinctual energies? So anger is your friend if you're a nine. But not, again, as some license to act it out, but it is an energy very close to the wake-up energy of, hi, I'm here now. Like Whoopi Goldberg at the end of the color purple, standing on that truck, Remember what she said in that movie? We all cry when we see it. I may be black, I may be a woman, I may even be ugly, but I am here, thank God, I am finally here. And we're all weeping because we are so glad she is. And we know it's true. So that, it's sort of the opposite of the eight in a way. I can't be here if I can't be here with my big energies. And the cost of admission to the real unity is the illusion of my separate unity. You know, I've, I've, I've done this mean trick I used to do with my students where I'd, I'd have them, I'd do a new age visualization and you have them get to close your eyes, and now the golden light is arriving, and your favorite teacher is coming to you, and now do this, and they're all getting into it. And then I have them start butterflying their legs and making deep sounds in their belly, and of course, guess what happens? You can't keep the, the imagination going because it's calling you back to the reality you're in. The unity you want is right here. It's not in there. The spiritual realm is right here. Thy kingdom come. There ain't no other place to find it. You see what I'm saying? The nine is the part in all of us that thinks spirituality is some sort of escape from all this mess. We just wanna get cozy and comfortable in an inner world where we don't have to deal with all the, the horrible conflict and messiness of the world. Who can blame us? But it's not what we want and not what will bring us to what we love the most. So that nine in us is called to come forth, to be here, to arise, right? The restoration of that magnificent sense of unity, being, being present, being right here, right now. And that brings the cultivation of the virtue. Oscar Richaso called this virtue action, which I, have a, I get what he's pointing to, but I have a, a word I prefer. Which you can, if you like this one better, or is whatever you like. Fine with me. I like the word engagement. An awake heart is an engaged heart. An awake nine is an engaged nine. And what does that mean by engagement? Some of you might know the spiritual teacher Byron Katie, who talks about loving what is. Well, that's kind of here in the nine and the one zone where suddenly you don't want to be anywhere else. Your mind's not drifting off to some kind of pastel who's-its. Here and now, I'm in love with the divine presence. I'm at one with it, and my heart is radically in love and engaged with what's here right now. And in that state, there's a glimpsing of the holy idea, which is that it's all love even the parts we find tacky or unpleasant. Yeah, that's worth waking up for, isn't it? It's worth getting out of bed in the morning. Nines, I think, are always afraid that if they show up, What's going to come out is all their rage and anger, and if they keep sitting on it and not being present, that will happen. But that isn't the same as what I'm talking about. When we actually show up, what do I bring as a nine? The thing I love most, being, inviting people to being, inviting people to see our fundamental unity and the sense of peace and my invitation to you nines is if you don't think this tired old world needs that then you're living on a different planet than me we need you to be here we want you to be here take a chance we all got to take a chance on grace You know what's so cool, how can I, I can say this, it's like everything we need just keeps getting provided. I'll talk about that with the two tomorrow, but I'm just struck now. It's like, okay, time for the one, and whoo, here comes the one energy. It's just, I don't have to do anything. Just God says, all right, bring in the next part. <laughs> it's very funny. Laughing and weeping, I'm laughing right now. It's all so absurd and sweet, really. Um, The core of the one is what I might call our sense of goodness, our fundamental goodness. That in any moment of real awakeness, if you look in the eyes of another human being, for all the suffering or fear that we might experience, you recognize something magnificent in yourself and in that person. You see this goodness, this wish to grow up. It's the part of us that our soul kind of knows we're here to, to mature into something, to fulfill something, to step into something. We don't know how to do it, but we know that when that's in the neighborhood, we respond right, that goodness. I've also discussed it with and explored it as it's the sense of dignity, a fundamental human dignity. You can see the poorest, most wretched, from one point of view, folks on the planet, and if you really see them, there is a breathtaking dignity in those souls. Do you know what I'm talking about? So this very sacred place of the one, just wants with all of our, every fiber of our being, to be that, to be in alignment with that, to live that. That goodness, that dignity, to invite others to that. Right? That fundamental dignity. You know, there's all this language in the Bible about people being anointed, of the blessings of the Father, the benediction. Right? It's that part of us that wants that benediction. Right? And it's so a part of us that feels blessed, anointed with something that is beyond us and yet we're partaking of. Does this make sense? So, ones, that's the core of who I am, that's what I'm here to be, that's what I'm here to reflect. I have all these other qualities like the other types, but that's my special mission of my soul, to show the world what that is, to show that face of God. Now, think of losing that. Oh my goodness, how painful. Breaks your heart if you let it touch you even a little bit. To lose the sense of my goodness, the sense of being blessed, the sense of dignity. And you see, when we lose these things, it's not just ourselves. the world appears to lose it too. The world feels stripped of its goodness, stripped of its dignity, stripped of its blessedness. So guess what we want with all our heart if we're little ones? We want to bring that back. We don't know how, but by God, we're gonna, every fiber of our being, we want to find out how to bring back that goodness, bring back that dignity, bring back this alignment with truth and reality, and it's all we care about. Of Course, detached from presence as we become, we get a few confused notions about how to do that. But no one can fault what we want in our hearts. It's with all the types. Isn't that a lot kinder way to think of yourself? So, if I'm a one, I fall away from that and I feel like this is the most important thing to restore this sense of goodness, dignity, alignment with the divine truth. But my ego doesn't know how to do it and it sure as heck seems from here, that other people don't seem to care very much about this like I do. And therein lies the birth of the passion. That the root of it is just the fundamental loss of this. The sense of losing that goodness, it's so painful. It's very close. I think the story of Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden for a sin that they didn't completely understand is very much speaking to this part of the human soul. The sense of like being cast out of paradise because I screwed up. How can I ever make up for this? How can I ever restore myself? Well, you know, there's a, we all know a lot of religion is trying to think of how the ego is gonna be good enough to get back into heaven, right? The ego can never do it. As we know, it's, it's an act of grace that saves us. And so it's like turning to that, and humility is, is a big part of the one. But to just say a little bit more, that the one's passion is traditionally called anger, but I think that's a little too broad, and I don't think anger in itself is a passion. You know, Jesus got angry. You wouldn't have wanted to have been there when he ran into those moneylenders in the temple, right? And there is sometimes such a thing as righteous anger. I don't think anger is a sin. It's sometimes a very natural response to injustice and and things that are violating of a soul. But what is the passion is kind of anger that we never let go of, that we chew on, that we keep simmering all the time, this state of frustration, annoyance. (sighs) That, that exasperation, like, By God, can't we ever get this right? What the hell is wrong with us? What's the hell's wrong with me? Right, that, uh, uh, you know, you can just feel it, and it's where is this in your head? Where is it? Uh, It's right here, right here in the belly, and it's like the belly gets squished. It's like I'm squeezing it like a tube of toothpaste, just trying to keep this messy stuff under control because the ego thinks that it's got to restore the goodness and the only way it knows how to do it is the way it knows how to do it through what freud called the super ego called the inner critic the inner critic steps and says don't worry i'll save the day i've got all the answers you need and here's how you're going to be good don't listen to that inner voice i've got what you need and by the way if you disobey me fiery hell awaits you Right? I'll show you a little taste of it right now. (laughs) Uh, Aren't we funny? (laughs) We're such weird creatures, aren't we? Good heavens. Well, needless to say, that passion can make me pretty miserable. And really, it's, it's especially ironic here because it feels like the more I'm striving for that goodness, the more it seems to recede. It's like the bar keeps getting higher. And, and I'm never gonna be good enough for that inner critic. So, what has to happen here is to come back to this real goodness and alignedness. the one has to let go of the one thing that we, we always have to let go of the thing, we have to see through the thing we don't wanna see through, the thing we're afraid to confront or to let go of. Here, it's certitude. I one time was in a, I, I participated many years in in the Ridwan School of A. H. Almas, and we do these practices called repeating questions and some of you have been with us in our programs and done repeating questions, but we had one once. 15 minutes each, tell me something you used to be sure about. It was amazing how many things came. You just keep getting asked that question, right? Hint, 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 right? So it's like, as we start to sort of reconnect with our natural curiosity and that openness of heart and mind and are willing to find out how we might be mistaken about some things, actually a pretty good chance of it, right, it sort of restores this sense of wonder in the one that I think is never far from a one's heart. I love getting into that with ones. It just, when you, they get in that sense of wonder and exploration. It's like the best of them comes out. And in that, suddenly it starts to restore that sense of goodness in me and in the world. The sense of wonder kind of brings back that sense of goodness and dignity and seeing it. And suddenly almost it sneaks up on you. You're sitting there just talking about something interesting with your friend. And suddenly you see them. You see you. And you know that it's good. And it doesn't need fixing. Certainly not from my ego. Does it make sense? And man, that's the best. And then ones start to, at their best, it's like, I am in touch with that dignity, goodness, and I'm seeing that in you. And the goodness and dignity and blessedness in me is addressing that in you and seeing that in you. And that's when we all just will follow ones to the end of the earth because we know they're reminding us of what we love. And they inspire us with that vision, holding the purity of that, that we all want. We don't have to settle for less than that. So the virtue that gets cultivated is serenity. Any 12-steppers or people been around those, remember the little prayer you learned? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Serenity could sound kind of passive. Well, believe me, it's not. Serenity is the very state of the heart that lets me be of service, that lets me show up in the face of difficulty, conflict, suffering and see what's actually needed. When I'm reacting in outrage to things, I don't always see what will be most helpful, what will most create and and open things to the good. Serenity is not trying to transcend the difficulty or the different feelings we have, it's more a state of, it's a non-reactive heart. I know that goodness in me, my heart, and I know that goodness is in you. I don't have to react to you. I don't have to react to the world. And instead, this magnificent, pure wisdom of right action, of seeing just what's needed, starts to manifest. And that's my gift to the world. And help other people find that in them. Again, that's worth getting out of bed in the morning, huh? Like this? Price of admission is staying present no matter what with our hearts open to being affected and our minds willing to let go of all that stuff we're sure of so that a deeper wisdom, love, presence begins to live us. So you put those three together you got a little picture of what an awake person looks like from the point of view of embodiment. Alive, vivid, real, truthful, immediate, confident in my place here on, in this moment on this earth. At rest in being, feeling at home, knowing the fundamental oneness and the divine presence that's here as everything and just resonating even physically in this alignment with this natural goodness, dignity, and blessedness of the human soul, spirit. And you got one third of an awake person. Just the first part. We got two more to go. But this is what I hope people will take from this time contemplating the Enneagram that the descriptions are just there, they're necessary to help us sort of recognize, as we saw in the straight-up, what am I actually up to? What does my behavior correspond to? But I just pray and invite you to not stop there, right? There is so much more you're invited to. And just think of these as windows into the depths of your soul and how amazing it is that uh, we're not all from a cookie cutter you could see it's a personalized grace plan yeah like just what you need to manifest and fulfill what god intends for you is made manifest
1: right you've just given us a marvelous feast Russ, and I, I've seldom heard such an integration of, of certainly the anagram, with the contemplative mind, psychology, with spirituality. You have the gift of, of giving what we'd call a phenomenology, an inner description of the, the movements, like, like no one I've ever heard in terms of the anagram. Uh, so I, we don't need more words for me. <laughs> we just need to taste and enjoy. I, I do want to lead into the wonderful ritual that I know they've they've planned. And it builds so much on what you and I both believe. Uh, you know, I call it the path of descent. You described it as the movement through the strata. Um, I think we're both convinced that that the journey through is much more the journey down. Whereas uh, so much of Western religion has given us the impression it's some kind of journey up into ethereal ideas uh, about which we can be certain. Uh, Perhaps the most precious gift I felt was your, your beautiful clarification of the notion of presence. We talked about it this morning at the Eucharist, that that was our only real prerequisite to experience presence is to be present ourselves. And you made the case so well, uh, localizing it in the body, which should be, I've always said, the Christian trump card, we're the ones who believe God became a body, and yet we've had the the most horrible theology of body and embodiment of any. And that has always been for me such a dilemma. And I think you're leading us in that most beautiful incarnational direction. And added to that, your notion of beginning with the the holy ideas as as the true self, I would call it, who we are in God. Uh, again, we we started so often, it seemed, I know that wasn't the intention, but it seemed we began with original sin. Beginning with the fall. (laughs) And you started in each case with what each of us had, and certainly as you described my own one number, I just, I had to hold back tears because I know that's so true, but I've never heard it explained as well as you did. This, This original sense of how beautiful it could be, it should be, it is, and why isn't it that way? <laughs> and then I just get so angry at myself and the world and, and the church and everything because it isn't that way. But you don't, you don't leave us there. You, you hearken us back to what we all know is our best self, our truest self, our deepest self, the, the holy ideas. And I think that's got to be the beginning point. I call it the indwelling presence, simply because I come at things more from the theological side. But if you don't back up that theological language with your kind of phenomenological description, so often people don't have anything to hang that that theological language on, indwelling presence, okay, I want to believe it, but I have to know how to feel that, experience that, touch that, grab that, be enwrapped by that. And I think you did that for us. Um, So, Mm -hmm. beautiful. (laughs) Uh, I think what you're saying, what I'm trying to say, is that the beginning place is much more the, the feeling of the wound, the touching of the wound. Uh, and and what, what a sad thing it is. Don't get angry at it. Weep over it. So it so uh, mills in with our theme. It's something to be wept over in at least nine different ways. Not something to be hated, changed, judged, dismissed, denied, avoided, all those things that we're so well trained in instead of the magnificent descriptions you gave of vulnerability and the shock that always comes with a moment of vulnerability.